Well, this week is a momentous one in the Miller House. It's one that has been anticipated, at least by Meredith and I, for the whole of this pandemic, all 12 years of it. Is that right? 12 years? Feels right. But on Wednesday, we will have two kids back in full days of school. If this church had a different level of production values than we do, then Cool and the Gang Celebrate would have started blasting there for a few seconds. But that song might just end up playing on a loop in our kitchen Wednesday morning. We cannot wait to have an empty house, Meredith and I, and full work days available to both of us on the same day again. I have what's probably a fantasy of just getting so much done this week. In reality, I'll probably end up taking a nap or something because I won't know what to do with myself. But we also, of course, can't wait for our kids for their own sakes. It's not just a selfish thing. We can't wait for them to meet new friends and play on a playground with other kids and just have some place to go outside the walls of our house. We've done about the best we can, we think, over the course of this last year and a half, but there's been a lot of doing the same old thing over and over, playing with the same couple of kids, the same games, in the same places. One of our saving graces was last summer when we started going to the beach. It was after enough of those early scientific studies had come out that said, you know, if you're outside and a little spread out from other people the risk is probably pretty low. And we decided we, we have got to get out of the house. Let's go to the beach. We can stay outside and spread out there. And we've gone pretty consistently ever since. All up and down the coast, Huntington Beach, Long Beach, Corona and Little Corona Del Mar. Meredith found used boogie boards online. The kids have met other kids there and built sandcastles and dug giant holes and all the things kids do at a beach. And there will be stretches when the kids are off running up and down the sand where I can just sit and watch the waves stare out into the infinity of the horizon, and just breathe. I think many of you know, there is just something about staring out at the ocean. One of Riley's favorite things to do at the beach is to go out into the bigger waves and just let them crash over him, drag him around and toss him back and forth. He'll just sit out there for hours doing that. In fact, I don't know that we've ever gotten to the limit of his ability to just be out in the waves. He'd probably do it all day if we let him, no matter the temperature of the water. And that's a little surprising, actually, because Riley, from the time he was a baby, has hated that feeling of your body being out of control. Peyton doesn't have the same aversion, and even though he's two and a half years younger, Peyton has been the faster runner, scooterer, biker for at least the past couple of years now. And I don't think it's entirely because Riley can't go faster. I think Peyton might just be more willing to actually go all out beyond that point of kind of feeling out of control a little bit. But in the waves, it's different. For some reason, Riley gets tossed around and loves it. On the other hand, though, I, I totally get it because I remember doing the exact same thing at his age. My great aunt and uncle had a beach house on the Oregon coast. And when I was a kid, we lived in Northern California and would drive up for a vacation once or twice a year most years. Almost every summer, we'd spend a week up there with my mom's cousins and their families. And my favorite thing to do was to go out into the waves until I was up to my neck. <laughs> that was where I always wanted to be. When I could still touch the ground, but kind of just barely have my head above the water, and the waves would crash over me and toss me around and churn me back and forth. There was just nothing else like having the power of the ocean thundering all around. And I could do it for hours, all by myself, in freezing water. I loved it. When we were together, we read Psalm 96, and it is just one of so many passages in the Bible where the glory and character of God is seen through nature, through the created world. The writers of scripture and the people of God have always looked to the world around them and seen aspects of who God is. 
the steadfast unshakability of a mountain, the refreshing, life-giving coolness of a stream, the faithful, consistent light of the sun, the power of the ocean. I know many of you have that sort of experience of awe and wonder hiking through the mountains or sitting by the waves, that you see God, feel God through nature. I wonder if that's part of what Riley and I experience in the waves, even if we don't quite know it or don't quite realize it. As we dive into our series exploring the mission of God, what God is actually up to in the world, and how we as individuals and as a church might fit into that, we're going to start by looking at creation. In fact, we're going to start just looking at the pre-human parts of creation in Genesis 1. We'll get to people next week. Because I think we can get some really important insights into what God has been up to from the very beginning, just from looking at how the author of Genesis 1 portrays the creation of the natural world. And I say how the author portrays creation on purpose, because the first thing we need to say here is that what makes Genesis 1 true is not that it actually tells us what actually happened in creation as if it were a literal timeline of God's actions and the exact order and timing that they happened, or as if we could have seen exactly this if we had been standing outside of creation with our phones recording it or something. Just to use an obvious example here, plants start growing on day three. The sun is created on day four. Ancient people were very aware that plants needed the sun to grow. That isn't a new discovery, but that isn't what the author of Genesis 1 is doing. And that isn't the truth that they are trying to convey to us as readers. To read it that way is basically for us to overrule the author as if we know better than they what's important and what they should be telling us. In other words, what makes Genesis 1 true is not that it accurately tells us what actually happened in creation. What makes Genesis 1 true is that it accurately tells us who God is, what creation is, what God is up to in it all. Just like with Jesus' parables, the truth is not in the accuracy of the story. There, There was no actual prodigal son, after all. The truth is in the theological points that the story is bringing to life. And to understand those theological points in Genesis, we need to start with the cultural backdrop of the story. There were creation stories all around Israel. Egypt and Babylon and Assyria and the Canaanites, they all had their own versions of a creation story. And what we have in Genesis 1 has some important similarities and also some important differences with those stories. Sometimes more skeptical folks or those deconstructing their faith, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, sometimes they discover these other creation accounts and they react like, oh no, the author of Genesis wasn't inspired by God at all. They were just copying these other stories. No, that's, that's not what's happening. The similarities between Genesis and the surrounding creation stories. They're what the author is using to highlight the differences. And in those differences lie the real points that the author is trying to make. The author of Genesis is intentionally telling a story in contrast to those other stories, saying, you think creation was like that. But let me tell you what it actually means. To oversimplify a bit, those other stories from around Israel tended to be violent struggles to form a hierarchical world that sole purpose was to serve the gods' needs. They start often with a cosmic battle, maybe between different gods, sometimes between some of the gods and primordial monsters, and then the gods are tired and they want to rest. And so they create a world and humans to provide for the gods and give the gods what they want. 
Basically, humans are created in a lot of these stories as slave labor for the gods. We'll get to that a bit more next week. But just as one example, one of the most prominent of those ancient creation stories is the Babylonian version, because Babylon was one of the major players in the area. One of the major sources of culture and trade and all that. And it was a story called the Enuma Elish. And in it, the god Marduk is victorious over the goddess Tiamat and then splits her corpse up to divide her waters above and below. So you can hear there the similarities between God separating the waters below from the waters above. But the really important part is the difference, how those waters get separated. And so we turn to Genesis 1. This is how the NRSV translates it. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome, separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs, and for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind, with which the waters swarm, and every winged bird of every kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things, and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind, and the cattle of every kind, and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God speaks and things happen. Far from a violent struggle, God peacefully, powerfully makes things happen. And God doesn't make things happen by dominating, but rather through relationship. God speaks. Words, after all, are spoken between two parties within a relationship. And God is a relational God. As Christians, we believe that God is Trinity, three persons in one God eternally. 
In other words, that what we see in creation, a relational God who doesn't dominate, that is at the heart of God's own nature. It's fundamental to who God is. So first, creation shows us that God is powerful, yes, but that God is also relational and that God doesn't dominate with their power, but rather peacefully invites the partnership God desires. Similarly, the creation in Genesis 1 is non-hierarchical. There are not layers of gods competing for power and giving a brief nod to what we'll look at next week. God does not create the male king in God's image and then create all the rest of humans to serve the king. That's the pattern of some of the other creation stories. But in Genesis, God creates male and female in God's image and speaks to them both. God doesn't create a king in God's image, but rather all of humanity in God's image. So second, God is non-hierarchical. The creation is good. And part of that goodness includes creation itself being fruitful and multiplying. Those words keep showing up. The author emphasizes over and over the filling of the earth, every kind of plant and animal and tree and fish, fruitfulness, multiplying. That isn't an accident. Part of the goodness is in the abundance, the filling, the expansion of that goodness throughout the whole earth. So third, God is good, a God of abundance and life. And there are little hints that I find fascinating. God starts by saying, let there be light and makes it happen, but then doesn't say, let there be plants, but instead says, let the earth bring forth vegetation. God has given the earth its own creative power in some sense that is distinct from God's creative power. And God asks the earth to use it. God directs how the earth ought to use its own creativity, obviously, but God has shared their own creativity with creation. And then things go one step further. God makes the sun and moon and stars and sets them up to rule over the day and the night. God, the powerful, gives away power. And then it goes even further. God says to the fish to be fruitful and multiply. The life-giving creative power of God is being extended to the fish, to be fruitful and multiply. And on their own, they would continue multiplying, continue creating new life and filling the earth. And again, in a nod to what we'll talk about next week, God finishes by installing humans as God's partners, God's representatives on earth. There is a clear progression here, I think, of God giving more and more power away, of progressively sharing more and more agency, creativity, power, life. So fourth, God is a collaborative God from the very beginning. And here's the thing. God knows that will result in things going wrong, but they do it anyway. Why? Because as Meredith introduced last week, God's goal, one that we see here in Genesis one, God's mission is for all things to be in harmony with and reflective of God's character. God's goal is not to create a perfect world. And we know that because God doesn't create a perfect world. The world God creates is incomplete. It needs fish and animals to be fruitful and multiply to fill it. It needs humans to subdue it and rule wisely over it. It needs those whom God has given their power away to, to continue the work that God has started. God's goal is not to create a perfect world, but instead to create one that is in harmony with and reflective of God's character. Those might sound like the same thing, but they're actually not. 
God's goodness is an aspect of God's character, but it is not the only aspect. And a creation that only reflects God's goodness, but doesn't reflect God's power or God's creativity or God's non-hierarchical nature, that would be an incomplete creation. It wouldn't fulfill the mission that God has. As we've seen so far, just from Genesis 1, God is a powerful God, a relational God, a peace-loving God, an inviting, non-dominating, non-hierarchical God. God is a good God, a God of abundance and life. God is a creative God and a collaborative God, one that gives away power freely. And God wants all things to reflect all those characteristics and others too. People often wonder why God allows bad things to happen. This is one of the most common and most serious questions that people bring to issues of faith. And I think part of the answer comes from understanding the mission of God as we can see it in in creation. The assumption people make is that God wants the world to be good, that that is God's mission for only good things to happen and for pain and suffering to not happen. And if that were the mission, then yes, a good and powerful God could just make it happen. And it would be confusing that God has not fixed it yet. But God's goal is not for creation to reflect some of God's character. It is for creation to reflect all of God's character. And one of the lessons that Genesis 1 wants to teach us is that fundamental to God's character are creativity, collaboration, giving away power, being non-dominating and non-hierarchical. In other words, if God were to step in and prevent all suffering, if God were to have made us so that we didn't make foolish, evil choices to begin with, were God to act in those ways, God would actually be undermining the very mission God is trying to accomplish. In the same way, to use a much, much more trivial example, that when I tie my kids' shoes, I undermine the long-term goal of them being able to tie them on their own. When I step into the middle of an argument my kids are having and just say, I, all-powerful dad, do decree that you should do this and you should do that. End of discussion. The dad hath spoken. I may be intending to help fix things, but in the long run, I'm making it literally impossible for them to develop into the actual humans I hope them to be. I'm not, again, trying to trivialize suffering with those examples. I am trying to show that that we're familiar with analogous situations where losing sight of the full mission of our kids growing into kind, capable, self-sufficient humans, for example, losing sight of that can cause us to do things that seem to help in the short term, but actually undermine the broader goals that we have. And I think based on the picture of God we get in Genesis 1 and the mission that God seems to be undertaking there, I think something similar is happening when it comes to God and suffering. That there is a long-term mission that God is working towards. And that were God to step in too much, it would prevent that mission from being accomplished at all. I guess in light of all that, we can add that creation teaches us that God is a patient God. We are, after all, several billion years into this mission (laughs) at this point. And uh, not all that close to completion (laughs) by the looks of things. But let me shift gears slightly as we close here. Because there's one more crucial thing that we learn about the mission of God from just the pre-human parts of Genesis 1. I wanted to separate all this out and deal with the creation of humans next week on purpose because usually when the human parts get included, we kind of put all our focus there and it throws things out of balance a little bit. But it is significant that God doesn't start sharing power once the humans get created. 
Although God does give humans a particular role that we'll look at next week. God starts giving away power from the very beginning. And that tells us that God's mission is not that all humanity would be in harmony with and reflective of God's character, but rather that all creation would be in harmony with and reflective of God's character. My personal relationship with Jesus, that's, that's a crucial part of that mission, but it is not all the mission. Evangelism in the classical sense of inviting others to come and be a part of what God is doing, that's a crucial part of the mission, but it is not all the mission. And that has important implications for who we are to be in the world. God's mission is for all things to be in harmony with and reflective of God's character. Human societies and governments and cities, our workplaces, our families, our personal lives, all of it matters. All of them are places where we can be a part of moving things closer to God's dream. All of them can be places where we can be a part of moving things further away too. And beyond all that, All of creation, the oceans, skies, mountains, planets, animals, birds, and fish of every kind, God's dream is for all of that to be in harmony with and reflective of God's character. As I said a couple minutes ago, God is a powerful God, a relational God, a peace-loving God, an inviting, non-dominating, non-hierarchical God. God is a good God, a God of abundance and life. God is a creative God and a collaborative God one that gives away power freely. God is a patient God, and God wants all things to reflect all those characteristics, as well as others. What would it mean for our world to reflect those qualities? For our families too, for nature too? What would it mean for our workplaces to reflect God's patience and non-hierarchicalness? What would it mean for us to treat the earth in a way that reflects God's goodness and creativity and non-dominance? What would it mean for our families to reflect God's collaborative and relational nature? Those are the types of questions that face us as we follow Jesus into the world together. Not that we would do all of that, that would be impossible, but that we would play the part in that mission that God has given us as individuals and as a community to play day by day in our regular lives. And to think through those questions a little bit more, when we were together, we turned things over to Leslie, who led us in a time of reflection, of making a list of all the spaces that we would be in, in this next week. All the places that we might find ourselves, from shopping to families, to workplaces, to politics, to the natural world. And then looking at those characteristics of God that I've listed here today, what it would mean for us to bring some of those characteristics into those spaces and which of those spaces we need to pray and ask God to bring God's character into more and more. So I would encourage you to spend some time in this next week reflecting on that. What are the spaces that you exist in on a weekly basis that could use more of God's character, that could be more in harmony with and reflective of who God is? And what might you do or what might you ask God to do to help move that forward a little bit. See you next time.